The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll begin the Gospel of John. But today we finish the third of three Psalms of Gratitude. Today we look in Psalm 65, which was just read for us. I think this psalm is answering, at least in part, this question. What does God do? What has God done? What is God doing? What will God do? And what this psalm says is God does great and gracious deeds. So this psalm talks about the God worthy of praise who does great and gracious deeds. Now, some of the things the psalm talks about relate to the world in which we live. And as you're hearing today's sermon and working through today's passage, perhaps you're not sure what you think about that. Did God create the world? Is he involved in the world? I hope some of the things I say today will open us for further conversation that I would invite you to follow up on as we think through what the Word of God reveals on that point. So today's title is Praise Due to the God Who Does. And that's taken right from verse 1. So if you haven't found it yet, Psalm 65, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, take it and turn to page 567. The psalm is pretty easy to track because right at the beginning it says, Praise is due to you, O God, and it spends the entire rest of the psalm listing reasons that praise is due to God. And so that's how we'll follow it. First we'll see praise is due, and then we'll list the reasons. But I've saved Psalm 65 to the end for a reason, and here's why. This psalm is revealing how the people of God in this day and age in Israel would recount God's grace at the end of the year. So did you notice verse 11 says, You crown the year with your bounty. The end of the year for Israel was autumn. So they would harvest and they would reap, and the Day of the Atonement was the last festival. And at the harvest Thanksgiving, which is very close to the time of year that we're in, of course, they would then pause and sing this psalm, Psalm 65, 66, and 67, as they reflected on what God had done over the year. I'll quote Hebrew scholar Alan Ross, who wrote, This psalm was sung annually when the first grain of the year's barley harvest was brought to the Lord and waved by the priest as a dedication offering. It is a song of harvest blessing in celebration of God's goodness to his people. And that's why I like this psalm for today. Coming right off Thanksgiving week, right into Christmas, here's the question I think this psalm would want us to answer. What has God done in my life this year? So think about that throughout the psalm. What has God done in my life this year? And as we go through the psalm, perhaps the psalm will prompt ways you can think about what God has done and why he's so worthy of praise, especially over this past year. All right, so now verse 1 of Psalm 65. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. This psalm reminds us right away that God is worthy of praise. So as we remember what he's done in our life this year, may we all agree, praise is due to him. 
Praise is due to him for who he is and what he has done in my life this year. So now let's see some of the things God does. Verse 2. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. The words translated hear prayer could also be rightly translated answer prayer as the NIV does. So here's the first reason. He says, God, I want to praise you because you answer prayer. If God has answered prayer for you over the last year, praise him for being a God who answers prayer and go to him. It's amazing that God would answer prayer for many of us. In fact, it's amazing that he invites all to come to him. So the end of verse 2 says, To you shall all flesh come. God is willing to answer prayer. He's willing to receive anyone. I really appreciate the way A.W. Tozer put it. God answers our prayers not because we are good, but because he is good. That is why anyone can go to God in prayer. Now perhaps you're already thinking, You don't want to say it out loud, but you're thinking, well, I've tried talking to God, and he didn't answer. Well, there are many things we could walk through on that, many complex ways to navigate that. I just want to give you one thing to help disarm that very real and sincere concern, and that is this. God wants and invites all people to come to him. So if we feel like he's not listening, here's one reason we can't charge him with. We can't say it's because he doesn't care about us. So verse 5 will actually say, To you shall all the ends of the earth come. And the Hebrew word is a particular one. It's not the one normally used to talk about the earth in terms of land. It's the word used to talk about the earth in terms of ethnic peoples. It's a diverse word. It's interesting to find that in Psalm 65. It's as if God is saying, Hey, I'm not just here for Israel. I'm here for everybody or anybody. So no one could say that God doesn't hear me because he doesn't care about me. Now, Psalms 65, 66, and 67 are actually a group. I very rarely make you turn. Can you flip just two pages to Psalm 67? I'm assuming it's two pages for you. If you go to 67, I want you to see God's global heart. I think, friends, this is one of the strongest texts in the Old Testament to show that God cares about the whole world. So if you've ever struggled with, man, does God only care about Israel until Jesus comes? I would commend to you Psalm 67. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad. Sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Perhaps Jonah should have read Psalm 67. (laughs) Psalm 67 makes clear, I think unmistakably and inarguably clear, God's compassionate heart on all peoples has always existed. He is the creator of all flesh. So as we return to Psalm 65, and you wonder, why doesn't God seem to be answering my prayer? There's more we could talk about, and I'd love to talk about it with you. But you can't use this reason. You can't say, it's because he doesn't care about me. Friend, that's not true. God's compassionate heart is on all peoples. So now let's see it. And here's another reason to praise God. Not only does God hear and answer prayer from anybody. Now verse 3. When iniquities prevail against me. Let's just stop the verse there. We're back in Psalm 65, verse 3. When iniquities prevail against me. What a visceral phrase. 
I mean, you can feel it when you read it, when iniquities prevail against me. I appreciate the way the NIV translates it, when we are overwhelmed by our sins. Or the net that rightly puts it personally, our record of sins overwhelms me. Right Now, this is an experience maybe you've never felt yet. In the Pilgrim's Progress, the main character's name is Christian, so I think we know the way his story is going to end. But before he comes to the cross, he has a burden. But like many of the people in the city of destruction, he initially is blind to his own burden. But as he hears the word, he becomes increasingly aware that he has this massive burden on his back and he cannot carry it. It is a weight that will sink him to destruction along with the rest of the city. But as he becomes more aware of the burden, then he is searching desperately for eternal life. He actually runs out of the city with his fingers in his ears saying, eternal life, eternal life. And when he comes to the cross, the burden rolls off his back. So here's the question I'm asking you now. Have you ever sensed that you have a burden? Have you ever sensed that you have iniquities prevailing against you? My sin overwhelms me. I'm not talking about my parents. I'm talking about my country. I'm not talking about people around me. I'm talking about me. I have a sin debt. I have sin against God. You need to feel that because until you feel that, you won't go to the cross. You'll be blind to it like the rest of the city of destruction. Have you felt yet that you personally have iniquities and sins overwhelming you? Now, when you do, I have great news for you. This is not where verse 3 ends. Look how verse 3 continues. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Praise God. Blessed is the one you choose. Friend, if you've come to have your burden lifted, it's because God was working in you. Praise God, God does that. He chooses, he brings near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. So how about you this year? Over the last year, have you felt the burden of sin, even perhaps as a believer? Have you felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but then the assurance of forgiveness through Christ? Blessed are those who mourn, and Jesus means over their sin, for they shall be comforted. Praise God for that this year. I felt convicted over my sin. I went to the cross, and I felt assurance of forgiveness. Now, here's what's amazing. The the writer not only says that God will just take away his sin debt, but God is more than a judge who just pronounces people innocent. He's a father who invites them into his home. Did you see the verse says, not only will he atone for my transgressions, he invites me into the goodness of his house. And the text says, I can dwell there. Perhaps many of you hosted people over Thanksgiving the past week, and you feel the immediate remembrance of people dwelling in your house. I don't know if you're like me, but I have a, I have a limit to that. Um, the writer Ben Franklin put it well when he was very young in Poor Richard's Almanac when he wrote, Guest, like fish, begin to smell after three days. (laughs) That is what amazes me about the confidence the psalmist has. Don't you know the end of Psalm 23? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for for how long? Forever. 
forever. I mean, if, if you invite someone into your house, you're inviting them into the intimacy of your life. You don't mind them there. This is incredible. The, the writer is saying, God doesn't mind me there. <laughs> Praise God. He has atoned our transgressions so that we can live with him forever. And he wants us there. Now, if he has atoned our transgressions and we can stay with him forever, do you know what that means? Our sin is forever paid. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. There is not anything else to do. So if you spend your life struggling with, I don't know if I'm good enough yet, that is not how it has ever worked. God atones our transgressions, and then he invites us for permanency in his presence. Praise the Lord. Salvation is once for all. That's why he can invite us to stay for all. If you haven't really meditated on it, this afternoon, meditate on Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 is my favorite chapter on the permanency of assurance. I was tempted to read it all. I can't read it all this morning. In the day in which this psalm was written, the idea of the temple or the house would have connoted sacrifices. So the writer could have thought, well, yeah, of course you go to the temple, you do what you're supposed to do, but, but you know, you have to keep doing it. But that's where Hebrews 10 comes in and says, well, of course, the sacrifices and blood of goats could never take away sins. But Jesus Christ, when he came, said, I have come to do your will, O God. And that's why he was given a body. He was given a body so that, verse 10 says, that by his will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, the priest stands daily doing the same stuff over and over and over. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice of sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for by a single offering, verse 14 of Hebrews 10, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So if you've ever thought, man, I, I'm still being sanctified. Yes, we are, but we've already been perfected because of one sacrifice. Do you have reason to praise God for this? Do you have reason to praise God for the last year? Let me give you one. He atones for our transgressions. Praise God. Now verses 5 through 8. Not only does God forgive sinners and want us to live with him, verses 5 through 8, he does awesome things. Verse 5, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. Don't you see the importance of Jesus saying to the winds and waves, peace be still. This is a prerogative for God alone. He also stills the tumult of the peoples so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. The point of verses 5 through 8 is that only God can do God things. And what God can do is awesome. Isaiah 40, who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand, who has marked off the heavens with a span, whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him? 
Behold, the nations are like a drop of a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Isaiah 40, verse 25, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Psalm 104, 31, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. Friends, God is awesome. No one is like the Lord. It's true that God has done things. It's true that God is doing things. And it's true that God will do things. The question for us is not what God has done and is doing and will do, but will we see it and be in awe as the peoples are in verse 8? Friend, if you're not in awe today, then verse 8 refers to what the peoples at the end of the earth will be in on the last day. Christ returns, all the ends of the earth will go from raging to revering the Creator who has created all things. Now, the very structure of Psalm 145, as you'll notice, especially in the remaining verses, 9 through 13, focuses on God's activity in His creative world. This is what some scholars call nature psalms. Daniel Estes, the Hebrew scholar, writes this, The nature psalms are not a separate genre. They're a subgroup within descriptive psalms of praise. They praise the Lord as creator and sustainer of the physical world. So we'll notice that in verses 9 through 13. Look now in verse 9, please. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. The creation itself is singing so that you'll see its creator. Now, I, I grew up in a fairly urban, suburban upbringing in Detroit, Michigan. And one day, my father, I assume he was working off a checklist of things every boy should know. And he said, son, we're going fishing today. So we got in the car, and we went to wherever he thought was close enough. But he didn't, I think, want to leave the city. Detroit's a pretty developed area. And we ended up fishing underneath an overpass. So, so people are driving. They're honking. We're not doing very well. After about 30 minutes, he said, well, you had your experience. Let's go. <laughs> we, that was the best we had. So I was, I think, around junior, senior in high school. Our church youth group had a mission trip to Nova Scotia, Canada. I don't know if you've been there before. We were there, and, and we hiked and hiked and hiked. And don't forget, I'm from a very urban, suburban background. I'd never seen that much woods, rocks, roots. The, the wilderness was amazing to me. I was also like, man, this is going on a really long time. We, we kept hiking and hiking and hiking. And then eventually, after what seemed like hours, we, we turned this clearing, and there was nothing there but this waterfall. And it was amazing. I'd never seen anything like this in my life. And I remember just jumping in and thinking, there's nothing like this in the world. Um, my grandfather had the coolest basement. I've always wanted a basement like his. He had a pool table in the basement and a record player. It was just the coolest place to be. And on that record player, he had Louis Armstrong. 
And Louis Armstrong would sing on the, the record player, What a Wonderful World. You know his voice, right? It sounds like he's gargling salt water while he's singing. It's really raspy sound. So you have the record player, then his, his voice, and he's singing, I see trees of green and red roses too, and I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. What the psalmist is saying, I see these things, and I think to myself, what a wonderful God. And this is what we must all see. This is what the text is showing us. This is what the world is showing us. Now, let me pause for a second. For those of you, maybe you here today, maybe a close friend of yours. I'm sure I won't fully scratch this itch, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to touch on it this morning. And, and here's what it is. Why do people see the same cosmos and read the clues to different conclusions? Why? Like, why do people see the same creation and read the same clues and come to different conclusions? And let's talk about that for just a couple of minutes, and then we can talk about it more if you ever want to catch coffee with me. Um, first, let me note that many people have flipped sides. So let's uh, give a list of people who've gone from secularism to Christian faith. C.S. Lewis would be a good example. T.S. Eliot would be a good example. A couple I read about this week, Francis Collins, he's the American physician, geneticist, discovered human genes. He's led the Human Genome Project, moved to faith after a very secular background. Elizabeth Anscombe, a very prominent British philosopher in the middle of the 20th century, went from secularism to faith. All right, now to be fair, there are people that have gone from a Christian kind of upbringing, and they've gone to secularism. Think of well-known Richard Dawkins, had a very Anglican background, went to a very, very secular place. Um, Very famously, Bertrand Russell was asked, what would happen if you die and you figure out you were wrong about everything? And Bertrand has a sense of humor, and he didn't miss a beat, and he said, um, I would look at God and say, God, don't blame me. There wasn't enough evidence. So he immediately felt like, well, it's not on me, you know. So let's take a minute then. Why do people see the same creation and read the same clues and come to different conclusions? I'm going to tell you three reasons that I think it is not because of, and then I'll tell you what I think it is because. Okay, here are three reasons I think it's not. It is not only our conditions. Some people say, well, you just believe what you believe because of where you grew up, where you were born, and what your parents were like, and when you lived. That's lazy. That's also inaccurate. I just gave you about eight examples of people in which that did not happen. It also is very disrespectful to look at someone in the face and say, no, you actually don't believe what you say you believe because you think you believe it for those reasons. So that's a very lazy reason. We can throw that one out. All right, there's a second common reason that I think is also not sufficient. Um, People sometimes say, well, it's only because of our bias. Similar to the first, slightly different, but they're saying, well, you only believe what you believe because of the bias that you have. Well, it's true that we do all have bias, but it's also true that there are some people who are intellectually integrous. They try to be honest and fair with what they're saying. And I think those people that I mentioned were trying to do so on both sides. They're trying to be honest and fair with what they're observing. So we'd have to admit that rationality alone cannot give an airtight proof for either side of the worldview. Any worldview will have spots in it that are unprovables. All right, so here's the third reason that I'm, I'm going to say again is a bad reason. So it's not because of our conditions, not because of our bias. It's also not really because there's this 
uncrossable bridge between reason and faith. As if like reason is this thing over here and faith is this thing over here. Many people think that secularism is pure objective reason and that Christian faith is just this wish that you want to fulfill. I I don't like the internet a lot. I don't have any social media platforms, never have. I've become grudgingly aware of them, so I read them occasionally. And I've read these things called deconversion stories. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Very often in the deconversion story, it'll say something like this. Um, I first thought I had this need to believe that there was a God out there, and then I put all of that aside, and I just went with pure objective reason, and I felt like I was finally coming home to a reality where I didn't have to have anything that I couldn't prove. But of course, then you'd have to assume that there's a standard of proof that you can prove. You would also have to prove that your intellectual faculties are reliable, all things that are unprovable. Also, you'd have to acknowledge that in reality... It's more than that. So those are the three things I said that they weren't. Now let me give you towards an answer of what I think is actually happening. See, everyone lives by some beliefs beyond the provable. And so when we talk about belief, we're actually not talking about belief versus the absence of belief. We're talking about belief versus a new set of beliefs. You either have beliefs built on revelation or you have built, beliefs built on self-desired revelation. But they're both beliefs that require unprovables. Furthermore, I, I'd want to make the case that when we talk about what we see in creation, we're not actually talking about the evidence. We're talking about the implications of the evidence. We're not talking about how we disagree on the clues, but the consequences of the clues. So here's what I'm saying. I'll try to make it more simple. In verses 9 through 13, the Bible is telling us creation shows us that God is. So why do people read those same clues and come to different conclusions? Because deep down, we know what the implications of those clues are. We know what the consequences of that evidence is. And that's what we reject. So here's Romans 1, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain. Because God has shown it to all. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived since the foundation of the world in the things that have been made so that all are without excuse. That's a very blunt statement. So then why are people seeing the same clues and coming to different conclusions? Verse 21 tells us why. For although they knew God, which all of us do, We all have the same clues. Why do we come to different conclusions? Because we know what the implications of the clues are. Here's what the implications are. They did not honor God as God or give thanks to him. So if we have the same clues, why do we come to different conclusions? Because we know deep down what the consequences of the clues are. That means that God is God and he is worthy of my praise. That's where the conversation really is. It's never about the age of the rocks or the age of the earth. It's about whether or not praise is due to God. That's what's at stake. But if you struggle with whether or not God is worthy of your praise, can I show you the descriptions in verses 9 through 13 again? Because I want you to see something about God's character. Not only is God a God who makes, but God is a God who graciously, wonderfully, and abundantly gives. 
So look in verse 9. When he visits the earth and waters it, notice he greatly enriches them. The river of God is not half filled. It's full of water. Verse 10, you water its furrows abundantly, showering it. Verse 11, bounty of the year. Wagon tracks so full they're sunk deep with abundance. Pastures overflow, verse 12, and the valleys, verse 13, deck themselves. If we wrestle with what God has revealed, one of the things we need to also see is God reveals how gracious he is. Not just that he is, but that he is abundantly good and kind. This is a quality of God that's so important to know. Jesus in John 10 says, The thief comes to steal and to take, but I've come to give and to give life abundantly. God is a great giver. And creation shows not only that he's good, but he's abundantly good. In fact, creation is singing this. So verse 8, if you'll look at it again. The morning and the evening shout for joy. Verse 12, the hills gird themselves with joy. Verse 13, they shout and sing together for joy. This is the personification of praise that is given by creation itself. Have you ever heard someone say, well, Josh, what about people who've never heard? But we've all heard. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day by day, they usher forth his goodness. No one could say they didn't know. No one could say they haven't heard. We can trust God's justice and mercy are so complete that anyone who desires to know more about this wonderful God, that God works and fulfills that. But no one can deny that creation is singing the creator's character. I gave you a Louis Armstrong song. Let me give you a Christian one. This is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature rings and round me rings the music of the spheres. Of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hands, the wonders wrought. This is my father's world. The birds, their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. This one phrase used to bother me until I think now I get it. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. I don't think he's talking about mysticism. He's just talking about the personification of praise that all creation gives. Creation shows that God is good. And it shows that creation is good because the creator is good. So let me say a few things about that. Caring about creation is a wonderful and right thing to do when it points us to love and trust in the creator. We care about creation, but we don't worship creation. We don't fear the future of creation. We don't stand in anxiety or concern. We steward well, but because we know the creator and his creation. I don't want you to be a pedant. A pedant is someone who dully and annoyingly argues over minutiae. I don't want you to do that, but this is what I've done in my home. You don't have to do this the same way. In my home, I do not use the word nature. I use the word creation because the word creation includes creator. And that matters to me a lot because my kids love PBS and they watch Wild Kratts like every morning. (laughs) 
And so they're always asking me, Dad, why is the cheetah so fast, you know? Why does this thing do that? We went for a walk this week with the family. We took the Mine Creek Trail. I was trying to keep them out of the water. (laughs) We saw the beautiful leaves falling, and I always try to say, hey, why is this so beautiful? Because God is beautiful. I, I don't want them to ever look at this and think this is just this. This is a reflection of a gracious and good God. Now, you could ask this morning, well, Josh, this this psalm says that God feeds and he waters, so then why do people starve? Why do people die of thirst? Well, remember I said at the beginning, this is a text about what God does, is doing, and will do. We can't forget this very important fact, friends. The reason the world has thorns and thistles and death is because we cursed it by rejecting God. Of course, the world doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Frankly, some of the reasons people starve are on us directly. We selfishly take resources and we don't share them to those who are in need. But ultimately, there's a better question to ask. After the Garden of Eden and we were expelled because of our sin, why do any of us ever eat and drink and live in a world that still operates? And the answer is because God sends rain on the just and on the unjust because he's that good. In fact, the creation is made by a God who wants you to know him personally. Genesis gives us a great clue in chapter 1, verse 26, where God said, let us make man in our image. Why us? Because as we'll see next Sunday, the word was in the beginning. And he was with God. And without him was not anything made that was made. He made all things. And in him was life. Colossians 1 is even more clear. Jesus, for by him all things were created on heaven and earth, visible or invisible. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and he holds all things together. See, creation is actually not just singing that there's a creator, but creation is singing there's a creator who entered into his creation. God, the Son, the eternal word, the one who made man from dust, entered into humanity himself. He became flesh so he could dwell among us. He became flesh so that we could grasp God. But he became flesh because he loved us and he was willing to die for us. The main thing creation does, it shows us there's a creator, a creator willing to enter creation. And his name is Jesus. So a couple responses for you today. The first thing I pray that you will do is come to your creator. Come to Christ. Christ who made you and then came to live like you in a body like yours so that he could die your death and give you his life. Know that he is caring. Know that he is compassionate. And know that he alone can atone your transgressions so that you can dwell in God's house forever. He invites you to come. Come to him. But may we all praise God from whom all blessings flow. And let us perhaps later today answer this question in a particular way with God. What has God done in my life over this year? And then praise him for it. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you that like the psalmist, we can end a year 
and saying that you have crowned us with abundant blessings. Lord, I pray that you would work within us a a depth of gratitude that we feel for a God who is so good. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done in my life over this past year in many different ways. Thank you for the family, uh, the church family, the relationships that I've had the blessing of knowing and growing in this year. Uh, But Lord, I, I can't thank you for a year without thanking you that you have atoned my sin. Um, Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ entering into creation, having a body like mine so that he could die. And he has the scars forever to show it. So, Lord, I pray that people would come to him. I know we have questions sometimes about what exactly did or didn't happen with creation and how to make sense of it and what it means. And some of those things we need to give each other a lot of grace on as we think through them. But ultimately, Lord, I do pray that we would see that there is a God who has made things and that he is good, that he desires a relationship with us, and that it is a blessing to know him and walk with him. So may people come to you as you bring them. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.